This is a little fudge factor that people use to try to escape from the truthfulness of passages where they're uncomfortable. They say it may not be truthful in this or that historical detail. We'll talk about some of those in specific detail in a few minutes. Um, A response to that is, I just don't think you can separate out certain subjects and say the Bible is only truthful on these subjects, like, you know, matters of theology and and practice or ethics. It's rather, uh, it's all scripture is breathed out by God. And uh, all the words of the Lord are pure words. And so every word of God proves true. There's no limit to the kinds of topics that is truthful when it speaks about and um, other passages like that. And then number two, people say the term inerrancy is a poor term. And especially, I said, when I lived in England for uh, three years and then again for another year uh, doing academic work there, a lot of conservatives, a lot of evangelicals in the academic world in England don't like the word inerrancy. They say, oh, it's too precise, uh, too scientific. I don't really like it. My response to that is that people have used the word inerrancy for over 100 years, and they've explained clearly what it means. And I don't, and, and we often use non-biblical terms as a summary of biblical teaching, like Trinity or Incarnation. I think the people who object to the word inerrancy really don't like the idea. They really think there are some mistakes in the Bible. And this is just a smokescreen. The term inerrancy is the standard widely used term in the discussion. It's not helpful to try to eliminate it at this point. And I mentioned the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Um, that was put out in 1978. I'm going to pass that out to you the following, the next class we meet, which would be November 6th, I believe. And we'll just walk through that. That was about 260, 270 Christian leaders from different denominations and seminaries hammering out a statement of defining what this means. Number three, people say we have no inerrant manuscripts. Therefore, why should we talk about an inerrant Bible? We don't have the original copy of Romans. We don't have the original copy of Genesis. We don't have the original copy of Isaiah. So why do you say it's just inerrant in the original? Well, my response to that is uh, for over 99%, probably 99.9% of the words, we know what the original manuscript said. And we gave the example of the Constitution. Even if the original were lost, we would still know from the copies what the Constitution says. And there's a huge difference between mistakes in copies and mistakes in originals, because if mistakes were made in the copies, that's human beings making mistakes. And um, uh, <laughs> the minute the ESV Bible came out, the proofreader at Crossway opened it up to John 3, and he said, oh, no, we missed the closed quotation mark here. <laughs> it was just a little typographical thing. Nobody in the world would notice it except a proofreader, but it was a mistake. Well, that's in a copy. All right, fine. But... If we have mistakes in the originals, those are mistakes that God makes, and there's a big difference. And what we get is very close to the original. That's where I quit last week. Now, I want to go on to three other objections to inerrancy. Three other objections that people say, well, I don't really believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, or I don't want to hold to it. Number one, or number four, this is the accommodation theory. The biblical writers accommodated their messages in minor details to the false ideas current in their day and affirmed or taught those ideas in an incidental way. In other words, when they were attempting to make a larger point, they sometimes incidentally affirmed some falsehood believed by the people of their time. And the example that was often used, and this, made, this article made a big controversy in 1968, <clears throat> it was an article by Daniel Fuller, uh, who was then at Fuller Seminary, a professor of New Testament in Bulletin of the Evangelical Theological Society. 
He said, look at Matthew 13, 32. Jesus is telling a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest, it is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nests in its branches. Uh, Dr. Fuller said, the problem with this statement is it's not true. Because he said, there are some other seeds in nature that are smaller, such as, he said, the orchid seed. <clears throat> it's actually smaller than a mustard seed. Hmm. Well, he said, don't worry. The Bible isn't given to us to teach us about mustard seeds. It isn't, in fact, given to teach us about any botanical information. It's given to teach us about the kingdom of God and doctrine like that. And it is true that the kingdom of God starts small and becomes large, and that's the point. So don't worry. Jesus just incidentally affirmed this in passing, just to make a point. What do you think? No, Phil? <laughs> Not happy with it? What's the problem? If, okay. I'm going to just repeat your words. If it's wrong there, it's wrong somewhere else. And, I, and many, many people reacted. Uh, lay people, pastors, academic people reacted to Dr. Fuller's statement and said the same thing, basically. If it's wrong here, if Jesus is stating something false, how do I know if I can trust him anyplace else? Hmm. So what do you do then? It was a problem. And some people tried to look at the grammar and see, well, is this, maybe this is just a comparative, smaller than many seeds or something like that. The problem is, um, the Greek is a superlative. It means smallest. Uh, mikrotatos, I think. I, I have to go look at the text. Um, and all seeds is all seeds. So <clears throat> that was a problem. But you know what? When you actually, it's just a question of spending a little time. And when I, when I heard that, I just, I didn't have an answer initially. And then I began to look at it and say, now, what is really going on here? And <clears throat> my response is, first, God is Lord of human language, and he can use human language to communicate perfectly without having to affirm any false ideas. Jesus didn't have to say something false in order to teach on the kingdom of God. My goodness, he was omniscient. He could have said anything. Uh, to illustrate this that was true. So I just didn't want to say that he said something false. But I think actually, smallest of all seeds, looked at the Greek word, the Greek word is sperma. And um, that word seed, in an agricultural society, speaking to people who were agriculturally oriented, that word would have meant seed for crops, seed you sow in the ground. Just like this, just in the same chapter, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. In other words, I think that Dr. Fuller was using the wrong definition of this Greek word. I think we should define the Greek word in terms that the first century hearers living in a farming community or society would have used. And for them, if you say seeds, it's something like what you'd say out in... Rick and Debbie, where are your friends? <laughs> Oklahoma would have talked about seeds. It's what you get at the seed store. Um, Jared and Barb. Um, 
And uh, Nancy, what? Karen. Sure, I didn't Karen. Sorry. Um, and when you talk about seeds, you're not talking about seeds you put under a microscope in a laboratory. You're talking about the things you buy at the seed store to plant seeds. And that's the context. So that I think that Dr. Fuller was importing a 20th century biologist definition of the word into the biblical text. And that's not the definition that the hearers would have understood. They would have understood of all the different kinds of seeds that you use for crops. And in that case, the mustard seed was the smallest seed things that you plant and you grow. And so um, I think that the answer to it is Jesus is making a very true statement. It is the smallest of all seeds if you define seed rightly. But Dr. Fuller was forcing a, a wrongful 20th century biological definition on the, on the word. Is that all right? Make sense? So I don't agree with this saying the Bible writers could affirm false ideas current in their day and teach them in an incidental way. I still think they would be affirming falsehood then. And then I think such an accommodation by God to our misunderstandings would imply that God had acted contrary to his nature as an unlying God. God is not a man that he should lie. This passage just contrasts human speech with God's speech and says God is unlike human beings. And uh, he doesn't speak falsely. Or in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. If these are God's words in the Bible, then they are words that are completely truthful. And it's impossible. It's contrary to God's character to, uh, to speak falsehood. And uh, Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to lie. He doesn't speak falsehood. And I have to say about Dr. Fuller, I went to Fuller Seminary one year. I had Dr. Fuller in a class. He was a wonderful, amazing teacher. I learned a lot from him in terms of New Testament and interpreting the Bible, but I just dis disagree with him on this, uh, on this point. Um, number four, such a promise of accommodation, if it actually had occurred, would create a serious moral problem for us because we are to imitate God. And if God has proved to be a liar in some things, then doesn't that kind of open the door for us to affirm a falsehood in some cases too? Be holy for I am holy. Be merciful if your father is merciful. Be as your father is merciful. Be imitators of God. We're to imitate God. If we find in God's word that he's just kind of casually affirming something false in order to make a bigger point, a larger truth, then wouldn't we feel free to start to do that too? And when our kids were little, I remember driving through a drive through at the bank before they had ATM machines and you'd kind of hand in this check for cash and then you'd get money back. And one of my kids is in the back seat and just kind of coming to an awareness of what money is. Oh, I get it, Dad. Whenever you need money, you just go to the bank and you hand in a little piece of paper and they give you some. <laughs> well, that's half of it, you know. Okay. Now, I could, have, I could have made a kind of a sermon illustration for my son saying, oh, and isn't that just like God? Whenever we go to him in prayer, he just has abundant resources and he supplies our needs. So I would be incidentally affirming a false view of what happens at the bank just to teach a bigger point about God and his answering prayer. Would I ever do that? No, I wouldn't do that. I'd have to say rather, well, you know, it isn't quite that simple because you have to put money in the bank before you can get it out and things. So, so I wouldn't ever affirm a falsehood that my child thought just to teach a bigger truth. I think there's something morally wrong with that. And I just don't think this accommodation theory is a good, is a, is a good uh, alternative to biblical inerrancy. 
Okay, now here's another objection. Objection number five. Inerrancy overemphasizes the divine aspect of Scripture and neglects the human aspect. I just want to say in general, when you... If people run out of things to criticize you for, the last thing they'll criticize you for is emphasis. Because that's a perfect all-purpose criticism. Nobody can emphasize everything all the time. So you can, oh, this church emphasizes evangelism too much. This church emphasizes teaching too much. You, you can always, so I'm just always suspicious of, of criticism. There may be some truth, but I'm suspicious of, of uh, criticism on emphasis. Overemphasizes the divine aspect of Scripture and neglects the human aspect. My response to that is to say, well, the Bible does have both a human and divine aspect. I agree. It's written by human authors, but it's God superintending it as well. But this does not demand that Scripture possesses errors to be human. And I think what people who make this objection, and I've read this in, in some objections to inerrancy, I really think what they want is for us to say, well, okay, it's so human, there are mistakes. That what they mean by human is really having some untruthfulness in it. I think it's both human and divine, but it doesn't mean that it has errors. God was overseeing the process of Scripture, of writing Scripture. And the second thing is, I would say, human speech and writing can be without error. I mean, I, I can say um, I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. I can say I'm a member of Scottsdale Bible Church. I can say Jack Markle is the chairman of the Elder Board. I can say Pammy Markle is married to Jack. Those are all completely true statements. Um, we can make a lot of statements in English. Uh, I can say Ruth is married to Phil. Um, I, I can make a lot of true statements in English that are, f that are f um, free from error. And so not all human speech has to have error. That's just uh, somebody's assumption. Okay, now here's the last objection. This one's going to take some time. People say, well, I've found some errors in the Bible. And that disproves inerrancy. Uh, there are some clear errors. And now I, let's see. Well, I suppose I started encountering some of these in college. And then some in seminary where people would say, hey, here's some hard questions or something. But particularly when I was in Cambridge for doctoral work in New Testament, there were other graduate students there who would bring up this passage or that and say, hey, Wayne, you believe in inerrancy. What about this? What about this passage in the Gospels? What about where Jesus says this? And, the... and so I would have to look at those. And sometimes the answer was simple, but sometimes I just couldn't see the answer at first, and I had to work at the text. But I have to say, and this is where I'm going to go for the rest of the hour, I have to say I have not ever found a text where there wasn't a good solution. Never have I found a text where there wasn't a good solution. And I'm going to walk through three or four of those with you to kind of give you a sample of the kinds of things that people will bring up. Say, well, this is a contradiction or this is a contradiction. But my answer to this is always, well, ask in which specific verse or verses do these errors occur? And then investigate to find the answer. I remember standing at the coffee break at Tyndall House one day, and there was this pretty well-known New Testament professor Actually, he was from Regent College in Vancouver. And he was saying, um, well, there's this mistake in the book of Acts. Even John Calvin admits it in his commentary. And I said, where? What passage? Well, this and this passage. So, what did I do? Went and got Calvin's commentary right after the, uh, after the coffee break. And read and read and read. Finally, I went back to him and said, Ward, you know what? I can't see. 
I can't see where Calvin says this. Oh, I must have remembered it wrong. <laughs> I mean, but that's the kind of thing where you actually pursue it and track down and track down what people say until you see, well, is it really true or not? Okay. Uh, the small number of problem texts should not be the basis of the rejection of inerrancy. All of them have been known by cent for centuries and have reasonable solutions. And so we have Augustine in the 5th century AD writing on the Gospels, and Augustine, he sees these questions about, here it says Jesus did this, and here it says this, and he proposes solutions for it. So he, he believed that the Bible is completely true. This wasn't a surprise to him. And back in the older commentaries through the history of the church, these problems are not new. They've been there, and people have dealt with them, I think, in a satisfactory way. Well, let's give some examples. And I'm going to start with um, one that maybe isn't so hard, but it kind of causes some questions for people. Uh, the order of temptations in Matthew and Luke. Hmm... Well, I worked about 15 minutes on this slide last night, and uh, I got it all on the slide, but it looks like I got it up to the top of the slide a little bit. This is Matthew 4 and Luke 4, and the tempter said to him, if you are the Son of God, we can make enough out of it here, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. That isn't the main question I want to deal with, but here is a, a little question. Did he say stones or stone? What do you think? There is a little question there. Yeah, but, uh, but in Greek, actually, it is stones in Matthew, and it's stone in Luke, because this is Matthew here, and this is Luke here. That's what you can't see at the top. So now, how do we resolve that first? Hmm? No, that's not plural. That's singular in Greek. It's very clearly a singular. Oh, could this stone mean... A, yeah, I don't think so. I think it has to mean a specific one. So... Yeah, I think... So. What's your name? Bill. Bill. Yeah, I think probably, Bill, what's happening is you've got the devil tempting him for 40 days and, oh, and kind of engaging him in long conversation, probably. Hey, command these stones to become bread. Jesus doesn't... Well, command this stone to become bread. It's probably what we would say an additive harmony. You can add one to the other. And it's two different aspects of a longer conversation. That's, I think, the easiest and probably the best solution there. But what I wanted to uh, point out more clearly is, if this side is Matthew and this side is Luke, look at the order. Then the devil set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. So there we got the temp throw yourself down from the temple is the second temptation. And the third... The devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, fall down and worship me. So that's the fall down and worship me temptation. But this one is stone to bread, and this is kingdoms fall down and worship me, and this is temple throw yourself down. So what is it? Is it bread, temple, uh, worship? Or is it bread, worship, temple? What's the order? Hmm. The order is different here. Is that a contradiction in the Bible? Is that an error in the Bible? Different conversation. Mm-hmm. Dick, what? 
Different conversations. Different conversations could be, could possibly be. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think my... Okay, say it again. There's only one word that... Okay. Yeah, I don't think that we're required to say that there is chronological order here with just and, and. If I say to you, Margaret and I went to Great Indoors yesterday, and I prepared this lesson on PowerPoint, and we went to the Botanical Gardens yesterday, do you know what order that happened in? No, if I say and, 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 and in fact, first we went to Botanical Gardens, then we went to Great Indoors, and then I did the lesson. Um, so and doesn't imply sequence. And I think that Luke is arranging these for his own purposes, just for narrative reason. And just like when you come and tell somebody what you did in the day, or a child comes home and reports what happened at school, it'll be the first thing at the top of his mind, but it won't be necessarily the first thing that happened in the day. And so I don't think we have to insist on sequence, except here... Probably then refers to a sequence. And so I think probably Matthew has the actual order right. Is that all right? You, you okay with that? There's a lot of topical arrangement in the Gospels of, uh, of events. Okay, what about this one? Thutis and Judas. <clears throat> this is um, in Acts 5, where the disciples are <clears throat> preaching the Gospel. A lot of people becoming Christians, and the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, is quite upset. And here is kind of the dramatic high point of this conversation in the council. A Pharisee named Gamaliel stood up and he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Well, You've read that before, and you haven't thought anything of it. The problem is, there's a Jewish historian named Josephus. Josephus, writing in 95 AD uh, or so. Josephus, very reliable, reputable Jewish historian, says, first Judas, then Thutis. And um, I got out Josephus last night and looked, and it's actually um, in Josephus Antiquities 18. Uh, there, um, there's quite a long, well many line, several line description of what happened with Judas uh, who uh, threw himself into the cause of rebellion and rebelled against um, the Roman Empire and then he was put to death and then later in Antiquities 20 is, is Thutis and it's quite a detailed description in both cases. <clears throat> now um, what are we going to do about that? Okay, <laughs> there are several inaccuracies in Josephus. That's one good solution, I think. Okay, Pammy? Maybe it's quoting Gamelius, not quoting... 
Okay. And so yeah. maybe Gamaliel had it is possible in theory that Gamaliel got it wrong. The problem is Gamaliel is one of the respected teachers in, in Judaism, and it would be sort of equivalent to Bill Frist, the leader in the Senate, mixing up the order of uh, President Reagan and President Carter or something like that. I mean, it's, it's something that he'd lived through, so it's really unlikely that he would um, for, you know, get it. So it's possible, but... Hmm, what else? Yeah, what's... Tell me. Oh... Okay, well, okay, we're going to get... Were there several people named Thutis? Could, you know, could we not be talking about the same people? That's a possibility. Well, so, um, I, so we're not sure yet. But I. Howard Marshall, uh, who's a really well, well-respected evangelical New Testament professor at Aberdeen in Scotland... Uh, Marshall cites this text as the one that makes him most uneasy with the term inerrancy. He said, I just can't figure out what to do about Judas and Thutis and Josephus. And Ralph Martin, a New Testament professor as well, for many, many years at Fuller and in Sheffield in England, looks like Luke got some details wrong, but the punchline was correct, so it doesn't matter. In other words, Dr. Martin said... The point is this. The point of this passage is, Gamaliel said, if it's of man, it will fail. If it's of God, uh, you won't be able to overthrow them. You might oppose God. That's true. The Bible isn't written to teach us about Judas and Thutis and the order of things in Judas and Thutis. Don't worry about that. And so that's why these people would not hold to inerrancy. But they would say, I believe the Bible in general. It's the word of God in general. But those details were wrong. Mike? Yeah. Let's say. Yeah. That's possible. That, that's possible. I mean, yeah. there's also other speeches by the Bible that are quoted. Yeah. But they could have been wrong. That's possible. Okay. So the question is would the Bible correct what they said? Yeah. Or, or accurately or report it. Okay. 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 It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. So it could. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, it could be reporting Gamaliel's inaccurate speech, but reporting it correctly. But I, I, you know, I want to allow that as a theoretical possibility, but if I don't have to go there, I don't want to because it's so unlikely that he would get these things mixed up. Okay, now, when I was sitting in a class with Ralph Martin and he pointed this out, I really didn't know what to do. I didn't have an answer at the moment. But later, I did some work on the dates. What is the date of Thutis, Judas, Josephus, and these two? In fact... First of all, I put the dates in green here. Gamaliel's speaking about 30 A.D. This is just after the resurrection of Christ. It might be 31 A.D., but it's very, very soon, according to how you date Jesus' life, but right around then. And um, uh, somewhere right around there, because the gospel is just beginning to spread in Jerusalem. 
And Gamaliel, speaking 30 AD, says, Before these days, Thutis rode up, and after him, Judas rose up. This Judas the Galilean is well known, and it was 6 AD, and uh, that's fine. And that's reported in Josephus, too. Gamaliel, speaking 30 AD. Now Josephus says, first Judas, Antiquities, 18.3. Then he talks about Thutis. During the days when Fadus was procurator of Judea, and this was 44 to 46 A.D., a certain imposter named Thutis. Oh, wait a minute. This guy came in 44 A.D. Gamaliel speaking 30 A.D. Thutis came in 44 A.D. Gamaliel speaking 30 A.D. The Thutis that is talked about in Josephus came in 44 A.D. So is that the same Thutis? No, it can't be the same Thutis. Gamaliel can't predict something 14 years in advance and then say it happened in the past. It's got to be a different guy. Am I making sense? This is an earlier Thutis, an unknown one. All right? And then after him, Judas the Galilean. And then, this is the same Judas. Right here, 6 AD, these are the same. And then 44 is Thutis. So you've got a, an unknown Thutis, and then Judas in 6 AD, and then Thutis in 44 AD. And that's the actual sequence. Well, I was long gone from that class uh, after... Uh, uh, so I haven't asked uh, Dr. Martin about that. Um, what some people have said in writing, however, Pammy, is, well, this is not a common name, so I'm not sure I'm going to accept that this was an unknown person. Well, my goodness, there are millions of people, and I know a lot of people with uncommon names. And uh, how do you know that, you know, how do you know that was, un you know, even if it's uncommon, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So, and it could have been a shortening of other kinds of common names. So I think it's a good solution to say, Josephus is talking about a different guy. There's no contradiction here. There's no error here. Are you with me on this? I like that. You like it? Okay. <laughs> Dick likes it. He's with me. Okay. All right. Yeah, if it was written in the Bible, yeah. Well, could have been uh, 44. But I don't know that, you know, by the time this guy was born, see, he would have been born maybe in the tw 20s or so. So, okay. So, um, so I think we're okay on this. Okay, could Jonah be a parable? Here's a different kind of question. What? He could have been a follower. You don't know. Yeah, maybe a great-grandfather. Hey, your great-grandfather was a rebel. Why don't you become a rebel, too? Sure, that could have been. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, the, the amount of history we have, re recorded history, all that is so scarce. So I don't think it's a problem. Um, oh, and here's another problem. See, if, see, these people have to assume this is Luke writing after 44 and just kind of getting it all mixed up. Uh, but not recording accurately what, what Gamaliel said in 30 AD. So I don't think there's a problem there. Okay, now here's the next thing. Could Jonah be a parable? Not actual history. The book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Why do people want to make Jonah a parable? Now, <laughs> well... Um, the problem is, in the academic community, it's kind of embarrassing to think that a man was in the belly of a whale for, 
And now the Bible says great fish, but I think that was descriptive of its function. It swam in the sea, not the current biological uh, definition of fish. I know whales and mammal, But um, it's kind of embarrassing to have to believe that. And so maybe we'll just say this is a parable, and then I don't have to believe there was a man inside the belly of a whale for three days, and then he got vomited out, and he actually survived. Okay? So I think that's part of the problem. So uh, some people say, well... Uh, um, Jonah, Jonah might be a parable. And now here's the question on this one. Let's say that Scottsdale Bible Church holds to inerrancy and you're interviewing someone to be an elder or a Sunday school class teacher in an adult class, enrichment class, or a pastoral candidate, or is going to happen here with John Bachman coming up in, in January, February. Where are you, John? Way back here. An ordination council. You want to know whether to ordain him? I think I might want to ask, do you think Jonah was historical? you think Jonah was actually in the belly of a whale. In fact, I know someone who is a New Testament scholar in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, and when they started to investigate in the 1970s, their seminary, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, he was on the team, and he went and interviewed some of their faculty members, and he said, when you sit down to the faculty member and you say, were Adam and Eve historical people, and was Jonah really in the belly of a whale, and it takes the guy 45 minutes to answer, you know something's wrong. <laughs> they kicked out 45 of their 50 faculty members at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. This is in the 70s. And they saved the seminary. I think they saved the denomination, the Missouri Synod, from becoming more liberal. But here's a test case. What do you think about Jonah? And here, uh, quite a respected series. New International Commentary in the Old Testament. The books of Joel, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah. Leslie Allen, the Old Testament writer here, says that Jonah is a parable with certain allegorical features. And he says, well, I know people raise the question of Jesus saying, as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. And he says, well, this is just like somebody in a modern time quoting Lady Macbeth or Oliver Twist and using that as an example for a sermon illustration. And I thought, well, a modern example would be more modern than Oliver Twist or Lady Macbeth. If you haven't read that recently, a modern example would be just as Darth Vader repented of his sins the day he died. <laughs> so you should repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. I don't know if Darth Vader trusted in Jesus, though. But anyway, you get the point. Um, and I'm not saying that Darth Vader is a real person. I'm just using it as a literary example. All right? So that's what Leslie Allen does. Um, and uh, he says, it's quite possible to maintain that Jesus' reference merely reflects the contemporary view without necessarily endorsing it. Uh, contemporary view that uh, Jonah was historical. Well, what do we say about this? Would I hire someone to teach at Phoenix Seminary who didn't believe that Jonah was historical, who thought, it's a question of literary genre. And this is a genre of parable. Just like the parable of the prodigal son. You know, that's a parable. The parable of the Good Samaritan. That's a parable. So, here's the question. Uh, now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and said to him, Go to Nineveh, that great city, etc. And then Jonah went down and got on the ship, but he went to Tarshish instead of trying to go into, toward Nineveh, and then you know the story. Okay, now what's the, what's the problem here? My answer is... First of all, we've got Jonah, the son of Amittai, mentioned another place in the Bible, in the historical parts of the Bible. 2 Kings 14.25, it says, Jeroboam II restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah. 
according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. So, in other words, Jonah was a real-life historical person mentioned in the historical books as a prophet in this other verse. That has to be historical. I think that puts this, Jonah, the son of Amittai, in the category of history as well. What does Leslie Allen, the Old Testament scholar, say? He says, I realize that Jonah, the son of Amittai, is mentioned in 2 Kings 14, 25. This is an obviously intended identification of the hero of the book of Jonah with the prophet. There may well be a historical nucleus behind the story, though it's still a parable. I wrote in the margin, back to Professor Allen, I wrote, if it's an intended reference, then it's deceptive if it's not true. That is, if this is an intended reference to this, and if it's not true, then it's, then it's a lie. And I can't believe the Bible anymore. I don't think so. I mean, I think he's claiming to be Jonah, the son of Amittai. He is Jonah, the son of Amittai. And then the second thing is, when I looked at this, I looked back at the actual sentences that Jesus spoke, and look at this. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I mean, I could just possibly admit the outside possibility that Jesus is, is in, if it just was that sentence, that Jesus was referring to something that people knew was a parable, but I had trouble with it. But look at this sentence. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, I might say, hey, Darth Vader repented of his sins before he died, and so should you. But I'm not going to say Darth Vader is going to stand up at the judgment, if I, because I don't think that Darth Vader is going to. I don't think he's a real person. I think he's just a myth. In, it's just a, a literary figure in, in, in film. And so here mythological people or people from a parable will not rise up at the judgment. You go on to the next verse, verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation. That's Queen of Sheba who came to see Solomon. Again, it's a historical person. So this cannot be parable. This is people that are going to stand at the judgment and bear witness against the people who don't believe in Jesus. That has to be real people. So again, I think, I just don't see any way around it. I think you have to say that this is that this is historical fact and conclusion, the inerrancy of the Bible, I think, believe, requires belief in Jonah as historical fact. Are you with me? Amen. I just, I can't, I just don't think it's legitimate. So if Leslie Allen were applying to teach at Phoenix Seminary, I'd say, no, sorry, you may be a famous Old Testament scholar, but you don't meet our doctrinal standards. Sorry. And that's the way we protect the doctrinal standards of the organization for the future. Last one for today will be, take sandals, don't take sandals. And I, I'll tell you, I think this is probably the hardest one in all the Gospels. Okay? So, and when I, for somebody first raised this with me, it was from my friend John Nolland, who is now a New Testament professor over in Bristol, England, and uh, he was working on New Testament PhD. He said, Wayne, what do you do with this? So take sandals, don't take sandals. So I look. In Mark, he charged them to take, and it's Greek iro, nothing for their journey except a staff. 
No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. You go over to Luke. It looks like it's the very same narrative where he's sending out the twelve. And he said to them, take, and the Greek I wrote, nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Well, here he says, don't take a staff. And here he says, take a staff. At the, I'm sorry, the sandals come in in a minute or two. So, um, what do we do? Just let me be sure I've got the context right here. Mark 6, 8. Yeah, he sends out his 12, 12 disciples. Okay. Wow. Oh, same Greek word. Same context. What are we going to do? <laughs> well, 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 well. With just Mark and Luke, I don't know what to do either. We need more information. Look at the Greek text. Wording's the same. Wording's the same. What are we going to do? Well, I decided I might just... Is there any other gospel that might have this story? Where else should I look besides Mark and Luke? Look in Matthew. It might be in Matthew. And so I look over at Matthew. And I looked in the RSV. They use the same English word, take, in the Revised Standard Version. That was my Bible at the time. Take no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff. Oh, wait a minute. Here I'm supposed to take staff and wear sandals. No staff. Staff. No sandals. No staff. Oh, my goodness, it made it worse. Now I've got... Now this one tells... Mark told me sandals, wear sandals. This one says don't take sandals. Big problem. However, then I looked at the Greek text of Matthew, and here is the verb kataomai. And kataomai is not iro. Kataomai means acquire, procure for oneself. In other words, go out and get one. And then I thought, oh, <clears throat> Jesus is saying, don't pack a bunch of stuff to take along. Don't take along gold and silver and copper for your belts or a bag for your journey. Don't take along two tunics. You don't need an extra tunic. Don't take along. And this is what got me thinking. I thought, it cannot mean don't wear sandals. I've been to Israel. And not wearing sandals in Israel is like not wearing sandals out in some of the desert preserves here. It's just rocks. There is no way you're going to walk in Israel. There's no way Jesus is going to send his disciples out without sandals. I thought, send him out barefoot? Now, I mean, I knew there were some challenging things, but Jesus didn't tell him to do stupid things. And that would have been just stupid. So I think it had to mean don't acquire extra sandals. Or don't go get an extra staff. And here's the reason. For the laborer deserves his food. In other words, people will provide for you. Your sandals wear out, they'll give you a sand. They'll give you sandals. The staff wears out, they'll give you a staff. Because the laborer deserves his food. 
So it, when we came to translate the English Standard Version, we changed this to, from take to acquire to show that there's a difference here. Don't go acquire anything new. Now I go back. Now I go back. Now I go back to Mark and Luke. I think Luke is probably using this Greek word iro, which occurs over 100 times in the New Testament. It has a huge, wide range of meanings. Just kind of a general word meaning take, like our word take. I think Jesus is saying, don't take extra stuff. Don't take an extra staff or bag or bread or money or don't have new, two tunics. And Mark is saying, take nothing except what you have. Yes, you can take your staff and you can wear sandals. This isn't providing extra things. This is just saying, well, go ahead and take the staff you have and, uh, and wear sandals, but don't get extra. And so here, take what you have. Here, don't get extra stuff. The same Greek word could, have, uh, could be used in different contexts, uh, meaning it's a different thing. What do you think about that? I think Matthew gave me the solution that helped me figure out that Mark and Luke were emphasizing different things in probably a longer conversation. Hmm? The Greek of Matthew did, yeah. What do you think? Still not quite sure. <laughs> um, I think it can't mean don't, don't, don't wear sandals. I just, I, it can't mean that. It means don't, don't acquire it, don't get extra. Now, that is, honestly, that's the hardest problem in the Gospels I know of. And I know it's not just like straightforward, simple. And you've got to say, well, okay, I've got to give a little benefit of the doubt to the author here, but it's very possible. It seems a very reasonable solution. If you are content to look at those passages and still believe the Bible is without error, I don't think when you look at other passages you're going to have any great difficulty, to be honest. That was the hardest one. Now, next time I might look at one or two more um, but uh, here we go. Problems with denying inerrancy. I'm going to I'm just end with this. Um, I'll come back to these. Uh, if we deny inerrancy, uh, there are some other things. But look at this. Number. F I'm just going to go down to the bottom. Imagine standing before God on the last day, and he says to you, Why didn't you believe Acts 5.37? And you say, well, Josephus said it was wrong. <laughs> mm, I don't think that's a good place to be. <laughs> I honestly don't want to be there. And can you imagine God saying, oh, yes, that was right. You should have believed Josephus instead of my word. I just put that in Acts 5.37 to fool you. No, 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 a thousand times no. God is not going to put errors in his Bible to fool us. We can trust it. We can believe it. It's trustworthy. It's trustworthy in all the details that it affirms. And, and, and it's just, there, there aren't errors in it. It's God's word. It's pure, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The words of, words of the Lord are words that are pure. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. 
You know what's happened to me when I've looked at those and people have challenged me on the inerrancy of Scripture? When you look at those, you worry for a minute. How can I find out? Is some, of you, some of you were worried about this, take a staff, don't take a staff, and things like and Judas and Thutis. But then you look at it and you find, hey, wait a minute, there's a solution here. And then you say, wow, that reaffirms my confidence in the truthfulness of Scripture. It's God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this good word that you've given us, using ordinary people and their personalities and their different styles and their different emphases and the different way they said things, Lord, but it's true. You, you, you oversaw the process. Your Holy Spirit protected and guided, and it's all true. And we thank you for that. We thank you that we can trust it. Lord, as we read it now during this next week, Give us even more confidence in it, that it is right and good and true, and there's no problem in it because it's your word to us. We thank you for it. Amen.